0: My apologies. Today's scripture reading is from First Kings. Verses Chapter nineteen, verses one through eighteen. Okay, we are ready. I am. I don't know if you are or not, but I am. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aaron. Then anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Naholah, excuse me, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all and those whose mouth have not kissed it. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him.
1: Anybody besides me know that one? Anyone? Ever been to the wilderness? Most of us have at some point or another. So, what are these? What's the purpose of the egg carton? Because there's, there's no eggs in it, because that would have made a mess. They're, um, they come in different size and shapes, right? You can have less or a little more or a lot. kind of like our Earth suits. These bodies that we wear while we're here on Earth, they come in different size and shapes, but their purpose is to hold something else and keep it safe. So they protect eggs, right? This is all the stuff that's inside the Earth suit. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, our souls, that part that God puts into the earth suit to animate it while we're here. And they may look the same, but if you look closely, they're not. And they have different reactions to things. So the glasses today represent the hand of God. water in the scripture is many things. Today it's the Holy Spirit. God holds the Spirit in his hands. He holds us in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Right? Sometimes God sends us into the wilderness and He wants us to be immersed. He wants us to soak in the Holy Spirit. Try, He's like, but we're bouncing up. We don't want to be under there. It's just no fun. We feel like we're sinking. We're drowning. God help us. Why have you abandoned us? Just won't stay down, and it can get messy, just won't stay down. Then there's, why didn't I use one glass? That moment when you realize you could have used one glass. There's other people that, to God, he loves us all, right? So yeah, this one looks like this one. But this one is different because God holds it down and you see it's gasping for life. You see the bubbles coming up. God's holding it down. It bounces up, but it's not quite as high. It's not or quite as high up in the air. It's going lower in the Holy Spirit. And God keeps giving this one a chance to get the lesson. Keep going under there. Doesn't give up on us. Stay down there. Get the lesson. Get the lesson. Oh well, wow. get the lesson. Okay. It's leaking out. Oh no, put it back. We'll let you leak over here. You leak in there. And there's there's times that looks the same. Ah, it's getting it. Staying down. It's staying immersed in the experience that God, the Holy Spirit, intends. Now that doesn't mean He's going to leave us there forever, but if we submit to the experience and we've prepared, He we sends people to help us, and it can get messy. It can overflow, can get on other things. But in the end. He's got us, and the immersion has done his purpose. So may the Lord help us not to be as messy as I have been, but to get the lesson and be his. Amen? Wooden table, water, what was I thinking? God covers much. Amen?
2: Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, and I'm going to even say thank you for the wilderness. Please help us to have a clearer perspective on what that is and uh, who you are in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So spiritual wilderness is kind of uh, religious jargon, and It may even be not super current religious jargon. Um, So today's question, we're in a series, this is the third in a series of sermons that are based on questions from you guys. And so what do we do about spiritual wilderness was a real question that I got. But I feel like maybe not everybody has that uh, framework of of spiritual wilderness in their mindset because I feel like that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. In churches these days, so I'm curious, how many of you feel like you're familiar with that term? Okay, yeah, that's kind of what I guessed. It's about half and half. Um, So those of you who have heard it before, what's what do you think a spiritual wilderness is? Woo! Wow, you just preached the whole sermon. an uncomfortable space where your personhood is being questioned. Yes. Right. It often comes, not always, but often comes after a period of success, even spiritual success. So, I'm going to tell you, I this topic is actually really close to my heart because I feel like a lot of people in I feel like the American church is going through a spiritual wilderness. Um, as a whole. I also feel like a lot of the people that I work with in the pilgrimage, the pilgrimage kind of exists for people who are in spiritual wilderness. That ministry that I do online um, is really for that, to help people through this process, partly because it isn't a super common concept anymore, and so a lot of times people end up in a wilderness and they have no framework to think about it at all. And um, and the reason why um, that topic is close to my heart is because I went through one, um, a pretty significant one. And, so, and this was after a very long season of trying to be obedient to God. I think a lot of times people think, if I'm in a bad place spiritually, I'm being punished. I did something wrong. I must have sinned. Something I, I, it's my fault, and... I'm being punished here. But this was not the case for me, and we're going to see it's, it's not the case in a lot of cases. Um, I was, I had just come back from five and a half years uh, working with refugees through some churches in London. I had done this through a mission organization. I had been, I grew up, you guys know, I grew up in a church, in Charlton Baptist Church. Um, I helped out as a kid. I helped out with BBS and I, I, we, my, era of youth group helped build the original church building, like we did all this stuff um, for God. And I really loved God. I was kind of a God nerd as a kid, um, which which sometimes didn't help me make friends. But um, But I was really serious about my faith for my whole life. So I wasn't trying to be disobedient, but at some point after this Um, I was in my 20s. I was about to turn 30. And right around then, I felt like God was calling me back to the United States, but not telling me what to do next. And I felt like God dropped me. And during that time period, I didn't stop believing in God, I didn't really stop believing the truth of the Bible. I didn't actually doubt that any of the, the things I had been taught or had been working towards or for or with were true. I thought they were true. I just didn't feel like God cared about my own life. I thought he just, you know, he, he kind of used me for a little while, which is what I wanted, and then he just kind of dropped me and he was serving with other people and doing all these other things, and, and I guess I was done at age 30. I had to, during that time period, I had to confront my own assumptions about God and also my own desires, the things that I thought I wanted. And after a period of doing that, that was about three years, the, the wilderness probably extended beyond that, but the three years was the, the toughest part. And right around the three-year mark, I said to God, by that point, I kind of had a better relationship with God. I didn't feel like he had dropped me anymore. He, he kind of communicated to me that he was still holding on to me, so that was good. But I said, I thought you were supposed to transform us by your spirit, but it's not happening. I'm exactly the same as I've always been, and I'm struggling with exactly the same things I've always struggled with, and I don't see you doing it for anybody else either. Little did I know that God's transformation was exactly what was happening to me in that time. I just couldn't see it. But also, that transformation would not have happened if I hadn't gone through that wilderness. The three years, but also really in total it was about ten years of this kind of reshaping and, re- and figuring out who really God is and who, who am I with in my relationship with God and, and all that kind of thing. So this is close to my heart, and I, I work with this a lot with the pilgrimage, but I believe that in churches just like this one, there are people who are also wrestling with this, and so it's important to talk about. Um, sometimes I talk here about the dark night of the soul. It's a similar thing. I kind of... I kind of use the two terms interchangeably. Some people might say they're different, but um, we're going to kind of say they're the same thing for our conversation today. So last week we talked about, um, last week we had our sermon, and then after church, during fellowship time, I was sitting at a table with a couple of you, and we had some really intense conversations. One of the conversations was about whether God wants us to be happy, and I actually feel like this ties in with this topic, so we're going to. Go there for a second. Do you think God wants us to be happy? Thank you. Okay, so for people who are listening to this online, I said, does God want us to be happy? And everybody said yes, and then you said, you think God wants us to be happy but not complacent, and you said, what does happiness mean? That's the question. I think God has something better for us than simple happiness. God wants us to have shalom, which we've talked about here before, so I'm not going to dig into it very deeply right now. But God wants us to be well. God wants us, and I I mean overall well-being. God wants us to be free, and God wants us to be fulfilled in a way that we are like him. We are reflecting him, because we were created in God's image, and we were designed to reflect him. So, as long as our assumptions about God get in the way of our getting to know God better, and as long as our desires, including our desires for happiness, or even for the things that I just said God wants for us, freedom and fulfillment, um, as long as those things keep us from surrendering to God totally, we will never be well the way God wants us to be well, free the way God wants us to be free, fulfilled, or be obedient, or even happy. Those things get in the way. And as far as assumptions about God, if you know a person, kind of, but you start to assume that you know certain things about that person, sometimes it takes a really long time to realize which of those things that you assumed were actually true or not, or maybe they were true, but not in the way that you thought. I used to say, I'm pretty good at reading people most of the time, but I used to say, my first impressions are always right, but not the way I thought. And so this is, and I guess I could still say that, I just haven't in a while. Um, This is the thing where, this is how our assumptions can get in the way of our getting to know God, our assumptions about God, or how our desires, even for the good things that God wants for us, can get in the way of our relationship with God. The wilderness is not where God punishes us for our assumptions or our desires. Our assumptions and our desires are not always bad. They're not always wrong. But it is where God shows us what they are, because a lot of times we have them and don't even realize it, and he helps us learn to manage them instead of our assumptions and desires managing us. The wilderness is where God transforms us. And there are stories in the Bible, in both Testaments, about wilderness. The two most notable ones, one in the Old Testament, is the Israelites, after they come out of Egypt, they go into the wilderness, and they're given the law, and the Ten Commandments, and everything, and they're, about ready to go into Canaan, and they get scared, and so God says, you know what, forget it. You're going to spend 40 years here. The reason that God does that is less to punish them. It's not a spiteful thing. It is, okay, you guys still don't know who I am, God, who God is, and you still don't know what I really want for you. You don't know who you are. You were slaves for 400 years, so I guess maybe 20 days isn't really enough to get the slave out of you, and the free representative of God into you. So we're going to spend 40 years working on that. In the New Testament, the most um, obvious wilderness story is Jesus, which we read in the responsive reading. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he is tempted by Satan. And he's... So he's in a literal wilderness. We could also say he was actually in a spiritual wilderness on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was not sinful, and Jesus had a perfect relationship with the Father, but he still went through a period of dryness, of darkness, of feeling separated. Remember in 2019, the second Sunday, of 2019, those of you who are here back then, that was my second week as your pastor, um, and we started a series on glory, and we talked about glory for about seven weeks, and we talked about how, and we talked about it in terms of a diamond and how diamonds have different facets. Diamonds are glorious, and they're also super dense. They're really weighty, and they are valuable. Spiritual wilderness is where the diamond that got chiseled out of the rock gets polished and shaped and transformed. When God transforms us, he transforms us into glory. His glory, because we're reflecting him. So, let's talk about Elijah. You guys know who Elijah is? Some of you probably do, some of you not so much. So Elijah was a prophet in the First Testament. He... um, lived in the kingdom of Israel after God's people split into two separate nations, and his main job was to chide this king named Ahab, who was one of the worst kings ever. He was actually probably a decent politician, but he was not faithful to God at all. He was very immoral. Um, and, so, and part of Ahab's problem was that he had married this pagan woman, Jezebel, who was also even more immoral, and who was trying to convince the people of Israel to worship her god, Baal. And so she had all these prophets of Baal throughout the land, and Elijah, right before the passage that Tom read for us today, Elijah is, um, has just been up on a mountain with the prophets of Baal. They've They've been in a drought, and he says, okay, you guys have an altar here, and I have an altar here, and we're going to pray to our respective gods, and whichever god sends fire and burns up the sacrifice that we prepared, that's the real god. And so, obviously, God is the real god, so he's the one who does it. Um, So it's this great spiritual victory, but then um, this slaughter of the prophets of Baal happens, and Queen Jezebel gets really angry, This is where our story today picks up. And she says, the way that those prophets of mine, because basically they were hers, um, the the way that those prophets are right now, that's how you're going to be, Elijah. I am after you. You're going to be dead. So verse 3 in our chapter today says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life, which kind of makes sense, except This is a guy that just had a giant spiritual victory. Obviously God is the real God. All the people, when they saw this, said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And so what happened? Well, he takes himself into the wilderness. He takes himself into the wilderness. In the story of the Israelites, they were already in the wilderness, and God says, you're going to stay here for a long time. In the story of Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted, the Holy Spirit actually sends him there. In this case, Elijah goes to the wilderness, but he doesn't go very far in. He just goes one day's journey in there, and then he finds a bush, and he lies down and says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He's depressed. He wants to die. Is this kind of weird? Because he ran away from Jezebel, who was going to kill him? and now he's asking God to kill him? Maybe it's better for God to take his life than for this pagan enemy, Jezebel. He's given his whole life to this God. He is exhausted, he's tired, he's depressed, but better to be at the hands of God, the God that he served, than at the hands of this queen. So, Is Elijah suicidal? Okay. He's not planning to take his own life, though. right? He sounds lost. Okay. Is he sinning? Was he sinning before he got to this point? I mean, I guess we could question the killing of the 400 prophets, but... That's a whole, probably, other sermon. I don't think, in general, the way that the Bible tells this story, it doesn't seem to be indicated that he's sinning in this moment. So how does God respond to his depression and to his request to die? He doesn't say get up and go to work. Not right away. He takes care of him. Yes. Yes. We're getting there, Lorna, but he doesn't get there. He doesn't go there right away. God responds with kindness. He sends an angel, and then later in the story, it says an angel of the Lord, and a lot or the angel of the Lord. A lot of people who study the Bible think that when the Old Testament says the angel of the Lord, it's actually referring to God himself, maybe in the person of Jesus. So, anyway, whoever it is, this angel, which means messenger, this messenger of God comes and is kind to him and says, here, eat some, something and have some food and a nap. He doesn't have any other ex- instructions except to feed himself. There's nothing yet about turning around and going back to work. This is actually really important. If you are in the wilderness or if you encounter somebody in the wilderness, to be aware sometimes the right thing to do is not to turn around and go back to work right away. When I came back from London, um, I started because I grew up there, and it was a it was a the right place for me to go right away. I went back to Charlton Baptist Church, and the first Sunday back, I I say this because I love her, Ron's sister-in-law, who was who doesn't live up here, currently, she's wonderful. And she was the children's ministry director there. And she came up to me and she said, great, you're back. You can help with the Sunday school. And I was like, no, I can't. (laughs) I really literally couldn't. It would not have been the right thing for me to do in that wilderness time. I did make the mistake of then saying I would join the missions committee. I, I don't think I should have joined anything in at least the first two years that I was back, because I was not in a good place in a lot of ways. I did, but whatever. So anyway, God knows this, and God does not say, what's your problem? Didn't you just see what I did with the prophets of Baal? Go, go, go back home and get to work. No, he doesn't say that. So after some food and twice and a couple naps, Elijah pursues God into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a, he goes 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness. This is interesting. He actually goes, this passage says he goes to Mount Horeb, but that's also the same as Mount Sinai. Do you know what Mount Sinai is significant for? The Ten Commandments. Right. He is the only prophet in the Hebrew Bible that we know of that goes back to Sinai he has some sense that in the wilderness he's going to find God. So he goes all the way back to the place where God basically defined his people to, to seek God. And God meets him there, and God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What does he say? <laughs> Wham. <laughs> Wham, right. He says, I've been working really hard for you, God, and I'm... And I, Basically, and I'm tired, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me, and that's what I'm doing here. It is normal for a period of letdown, especially after you've been working hard for God, and if there is a spiritual triumph, there's often a letdown. It is not always spiritual opposition. Sometimes it's our own inner opposition because we're not fully sanctified yet, we're not perfect yet. We still have we have our our bodies which have limitations, but our minds, our emotions, all of the parts of us are still bound by this current existence. And so sometimes our own internal selves just wears down. God is big. And when he does something major through us, we can deflate after a while. Um, and so this is what happens in Elijah's case. He is, he, there is some spiritual opposition. He's been opposing evil spiritual powers. But he's also exhausted because he's kind of been metaphorically pushing a rock up a hill for three years. He says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. They may have shouted, the Lord, he is God, but maybe Elijah doesn't actually believe that God is going to really truly transform them any better than I believed that God was transforming me. He says, I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Have you ever felt like the only one left? Elijah feels like he has spent himself for God with nothing to show for it, and he is done. He used to be okay with living in a dried-up brook and letting crows feed him, or ravens, carrion birds. He used to be okay with couch surfing on the borders of Israel at a widow of Zarephath's house. But now he's older and he's tired and he wanted to be retired by now, but it doesn't look like all his hard work and all his sacrifice has changed anything. Anyone else here feel like this? Ever? Yeah. So there are three choices that we make when we get to that point. We either double down and work harder. I don't like how I'm feeling here. I'm not doing well spiritually. I just need to work harder. I need to do more for God. I need to, I need to just pull myself up by my bootstraps. I need to shut down my questions and my doubts. I need to forget that I have them. I need to keep myself busy so that I don't notice how tired I am, how discouraged I am, or the doubts that I'm having. This is not long-term sustainable. You will not get much farther into the wilderness than the broom tree, or the maybe the second cup of water that Sandy showed us, the second egg. You, Something might happen for you there, but it's gonna burn you out. The second thing you could do is you could give up entirely. And some people are doing this these days. I see people doing this all the time. They just say, "You know what? Everything I believed before was complete trash. I give up. I'm going to give in to my assumptions about God and my doubts about God. Maybe he's not good, maybe he doesn't love me, maybe he's just bad or abusive, or maybe he doesn't exist, and the church is abusive, and I'm going to give in to my desires. I'm going to do whatever I want. Maybe you even become ashamed of everything that you used to work for, that you used to try to do, everything you've done. You become angry about it. Maybe you repudiate it. Or there's a third thing you can do. You can pursue God into the wilderness. In the wilderness, there is nothing to distract us from the voices. The questions the desires, the assumptions, and the doubts. But there's also nothing to distract us from God because those voices, they will try to distract us from God, but we will start to be able to tell the difference. We'll be able to tell the difference between the good things that we think will make us happy and the God who will fulfill us. We can start to see where we've been doing things for God instead of with God where our obedience has become an end in itself, maybe, instead of God being the end in himself, eventually, the wilderness will put us face to face with God. And we will decide if we will really let him be our goal. Let God be our goal, and let him make us who he wants, instead of demanding or at least hoping that he'll give us the life with the trappings we want. I think a lot of times this is why we get tied up when we feel like God doesn't answer prayers because we haven't gotten to know God enough. This isn't the only reason, or always the reason, but I think sometimes it's the reason because we haven't gotten to know God enough to realize that he himself is the answer to the prayers and how he answers them is not a given, but he will answer it out of the fullness of who he is instead of the things that we... Want or we think we want. So Elijah, so we already said, Elijah goes on the strength of this food and a nap and he goes into the wilderness and God asks him where he is and he tells God how hard he's been working and how isolated he feels and God says, come on out and meet me. And Elijah faces earth, wind, and fire, but God is not in any of those things. There's an earthquake, there's like a tornado type thing, and then there's fire. And all of those things happened at that mountain when God revealed himself to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So God has been in those things before when he gave the Ten Commandments. And God showed up in the showdown with the prophets of Baal when he set Elijah's offering on fire. But all those things, even though God was in them before, he's not in them now because they're not him. They're just translators. And God is helping Elijah get rid of the translators, which often, for us, become idols. So there is no longer anything between Elijah and God. And then God just whispers. A still, small voice says some translations, or some of them say a quiet whisper, some of them say a sound of sheer silence. It has to be super quiet to be able to hear any of those things. It is very close, very intimate. Nothing is drowning God out now. And God asks Elijah where he is, or why he's there. And Elijah gives God the same answer, but evidently God knows that Elijah is on the way to transformation, and so now he can commission him for something new. He says, go back the way you came, but now you have something different to do. You're going to anoint a new king, Ahab's done, and you're going to anoint someone to succeed you as a prophet. Oh, and by the way, you're not alone. You are not the only one. So Elijah doesn't really get to retire, but he does get to mentor someone who will take over after him. And verse 21, which we didn't read, um, it says that Elisha, the successor, becomes Elijah's servant. So he gets to mentor this younger man, but he doesn't have to do all the work anymore, and he's not on his own anymore. And he gets to, instead of working for God so hard, He gets to pour out anointing. He anoints a king, and he anoints a prophet. He's working with God now. And he gets taken up into glory. He actually leaves the earth in a chariot of fire, interestingly. It's like his and God's private joke, maybe he gets taken up into glory because he allowed God to meet him where he was and make him into God, who God intended him to be. And that is where true joy, true happiness, and glory are found. So, we're about to go into communion, which is a symbol of a lot of things. Um, at minimum, it's a symbol of our salvation. It also is a symbol of how God has gone through the wilderness for us and poured out his life for us. As we go into this service of communion, here are some questions. Where are you in your journey with God? Have you just set out? Are you deeply committed to serving and obeying God? Are you feeling tired and beat up and hopeless? Are you facing God and the difference between him and the good things he has created? Are you feeling like you're starting to heal? Or being recommissioned. Are you finding life with God is much more second nature than, and joyous than you used to think? Any one of those stages is part of the stage of life, part of the life with God. All of those places are good. None of them are sinful. They are all part of following Jesus. God works them all together to make us more like Jesus and to bring us the glory of joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth that you are with us even when it feels like you're not. That you are working real transformation in our lives so that we can be fulfilled and we can reflect you to the world. Thank you that you are not stingy with your glory. You want to share it in us and through us and with us. Thank you for this table that we're about to celebrate. We ask your blessing on all of us and that we will walk forward in the strength of the food that you provide us. In Jesus' name, amen.